dispatches from Planet Funk. This is the A-Style Podcast. Dedicated to all whom the man tried to A-Style. By profiting from the soul. Without stopping to give props to the prophets of soul. That's correct, I'm Ace Allen, a.k.a. Barack Wayne. I'm getting ready to talk to uh, Linda Scheider. I just finished interviewing her, as a matter of fact. She's the P-Funk Queen who's visiting us from Columbus, Ohio. She's fresh off a triumphant comic book signing at the Funkadier's Ball. She sold out copies and made an instant collector's item out of her new comic book, Diaper Man, starring her husband, legendary and longtime band leader, Gary Scheider, as the titular character. But more on that later. Speaking of Funk Queens, you guys, our last episode, episode 31, that was a great episode that was with Don Silva. Another funk queen. Um, she told me, actually, I don't know if she's just being nice or it's true. She told me she sold a lot of books from that episode. So if that's true, I'm proud of that. And thank you, Don. Um, I do think there's a couple things I could have done better with that interview. So I hope hope Don will come in again soon. I kind of chickened out asking her questions about Charlie Wilson. As you guys may recall, if you saw that episode... Or if you've read her autobiography, there's some shocking revelations about the behavior of Charlie Wilson. And um, she kind of mentioned after the interview, actually, when we were talking to her, uh, myself and Scott, my friend and executive producer, she mentioned that she was ready to talk about that. Um, So hopefully we can talk to her about that in the future. Um... Coming up, by the way, you guys, and by the way, sorry I was gone again for a long time. There's always something going on. We're going to try to do episodes more regularly for you. Next up is Shauna Hall. Remember Shauna Hall? She stopped by when Don Silva was here. She's a guitarist. She's a P-Funk guitarist, a founding member of Four Non Blondes. She's going to come in here, and she's going to play some music. We also have um, another P-Funk guitarist. I won't tell you what his name is yet because I don't want to jinx it. Uh, scheduled to come on as well. He'll be coming out here from Detroit. Shout out, wink, wink. But forget all that because, you guys, I have a very important announcement. And you guys are going to be shocked by this. I was really happy to see this. And this is one of the most proudest moments of my podcast career. So I got this email, right? And the title of the email is A Stout Podcast is ranking very well in Sweden. <laughs> I open the email and the email says, Hello, how's it going? Hope all is well. I have some cool information that might interest you. Your podcast, A Stout Podcast, has good performance in Apple Podcast rankings. You're in position number 79 in the category of music interviews in Sweden. Oh my God! Number 79? By the way, there's only 78 of those shows in Sweden. 
You know what, guys? I'm being a little facetious, but I am proud of that because it's guerrilla marketing. We don't have a big, you know, budget like Jimmy Fallon or something like that. The fact that we would actually rank in Sweden, I take great pride in that. I take that seriously. As a matter of fact, I think this would be a good moment to show my appreciation, Grace. Grace, if you could do me a favor, I want to play the Swedish national anthem. There it is. Way better than ours, by the way. Listen to that. This is important. Listen to this part. One more time. You're so funky, Sweden. You got funk and you got soul. best meatballs I've ever tasted. One more time. And I want to shout out, you know why we're so popular in Sweden? I bet you it's that dude, Andy, Andy Eric Englund. He's got a group called the Neon Romeos, a funky group in Sweden. And I know he's hip to a Out podcast. I've gotten some messages from him before. So that's a shout out to you guys. I'm going to defect. I'm moving to Sweden. I want to be a Swedish citizen. Uh, so maybe you can put in a good word for me. Um, by the way, I want to say goodbye to Stitcher. Stitcher was like one of my favorite podcast um, apps to use to listen to different podcasts. I really liked how the Ace Out podcast was on Stitcher. They went out of business, y'all. They, uh, they stopped um, being a thing last August. So goodbye. Bye, Stitcher. I really like Stitcher. You can still listen to audio-only podcasts, though, on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. I know our Sweet LD episode is still very popular. But what I really want you guys to do is like and subscribe. Like and subscribe our YouTube channel. We almost have enough uh, members where we can monetize. And we can do more shows for you and give you more funk history. Please like and subscribe the Ace Out Podcast YouTube channel. And I want you guys to leave us a comment as well. Uh, I also want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to aceoutpodcast.com and I want you to find our link to merch. Excuse me, I'm getting thirsty. I have my uh, Ace Out Podcast mug here. This is a large size one. We also have smaller uh, white mugs. We have an array, as you can see behind me, of shirts, hoodies, hats and we even have swimming trunks if you could believe that um you could get those find those at aceoutpodcast.com that's a-c-e-d-o-u-t-p-o-d-c-a-s-t.com get some of our merch it's really high quality and it ships to you really fast in the house uh we're here at legendary different first studios here in the heart of the mission in san francisco 
Grace Coleman is behind the board. Grace under pressure Coleman, I like to call her. Behind the camera for Zon Media, we have Dominique and Don. Per usual, my buddy and executive producer Scott Shepard is here. But without further ado, do I want to talk to Linda Scheider. She's coming right up and she'll be sitting right over there. All right, y'all. We're about to shine our flashlight on another funk queen. Talking about the longtime spouse of the legendary Gary Scheider, who's also a gifted piano player in her own right. She's one of the very few credited female songwriters in P-Funk. She's contributed original material to such albums as One Nation Under a Groove by Funkadelic and The Pleasure Principle by Parlay. Before getting with the P, she was a professional model and actress who has appeared on screen in many Hollywood films. Her past bands have been Legs with a Z, which she had before um, she got into the P, and also Children of Production with her spouse and Gary Mudbone Cooper. She did an album with Gary in 2017, Tale of Two Funkies, which I love. It's a great compilation, and you can get it on Amazon. Featuring such songs as Knockin', Glory of Love, and I Remember. She also has a couple sons. One of them, Marshall, is a family man who used to do beats for George. And another, Garrett, who tours with George currently. Uh, Scott and I just saw him perform last February, as a matter of fact. She's up to exciting things lately. She's promoting her Diaper Man comic book. Look at this. Featuring... Gary Scheider, Diaper Man, as the titular character. She almost sold out her copies of this book, so it's a collector's item already, at the Funketeers Ball last month. And now, all the way from Columbus, Ohio, please welcome Linda Scheider, a.k.a. Linda Legs. Hi. What's up? How are you doing? How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm so <laughs> glad you're here. Glad to be here. Um, okay, first I want, want to ask you about is the comic book. So how did you put this project together? Well, it was just a concept I had been milling over for a couple of years because I always remember when Gary was flying on that little thin wire over the stadiums and coliseums and stuff, how scary it was to look up and just like, please, God, don't let him fall. <laughs> and I felt like since he was the one that volunteered to do it, that he earned some credit for that. You know, it was kind of like a superhero uh, idea. And the way he did it so proudly and so c courageously, and he'd be flipping over, and I'm down there, you know, my heart's <laughs> in my mouth, and like, please, God, let him come down in one piece, that kind of stuff every night. It was scary to me. And they took me up on it one time, and I really realized how high he was going and how little everybody looked below. And the courage it took, I just thought he deserved that kind of momentum. And it was his 70th birthday in July, so I figured it was a good time to do it. Nice. Wow. Happy birthday. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Are you going to do any follow-up, I hope? We or had intended to, but the two guys that designed it and did the artwork and stuff, they're both kind of like over-committed right now. And uh, the printer that, we d that did it for me, he's going out of business. And I don't know if the template is still available, even if I wanted to do more of that one, you know. So it kind of was an idea to do two or three more, but it kind of doesn't look like it's going to happen. You hear that, guys? So it's a collector's item, and there's, uh, there's very few left. I'm glad I got mine. Only four. <laughs> <laughs> Only four left? 
Um, okay. I wanted to ask you about the the diaper itself because I never thought about that. I've seen Gary perform so many times over the years, personally myself, uh-huh. uh, as band leader for P-Funk All-Stars. When did he first start putting the diaper on, and what kind of was it? Was it a cloth one, a plastic one? It was always a towel. He was, you know, it's a you, towel? sometime it was a Holiday Inn because they'd stay at the Holiday Inn a lot, so it would have the Holiday Inn logo down the middle. But basically, George did it once, and Gary looked at it and said, "Hmm," because he, you know, with the pacifier, he was always like a perpetual in baby mode kind of thing, you know. So he just figured that would be a perfect outfit, a new kind of concept for him to go with. And once he started doing it and everybody liked it so much, he just kept on doing it. Was he flying free underwear? Did he have underwear underneath there? No, he did not. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes the willy would kind of pop out if the diaper was too small, you know, if the towel was too small, rather, you know. So it was kind of scary sometime as well, you know, what was going to happen. Oh, shit. It was kind of <laughs> oh, God, here we go. <laughs> oh, look at that. You know, all the groupies would be like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> By the like, way, um, another thing I really want to hear about that I mentioned is the Funketeers Ball. Uh-huh. How, how are those events? So they have, how many of the, have there been? Like three? Uh, this year was the seventh. The and, seventh. Uh-huh, okay. the, at the, in the beginning, they were getting a lot more of a crowd. During COVID, of course, it kind of backed off a lot. Uh, People weren't, you know, showing up in group, things like that. So and it's I think, in Maryland, right? Uh huh. It's Bethesda. That's how you pronounce it. Bethesda. Bethesda. <laughs> Bethesda. Sorry, so Bethesda. last year and this year, the crowds were not as big as he anticipated they would be. So uh, the girls, uh, Dawn and myself, and some of the Parlette girls, and uh, George's niece uh, Shirley Clinton, who has some nice stuff out herself. Yeah. And she's self-producing. Her. She's yeah, doing sure. all her stuff, all her own stuff. We're thinking that maybe it might be a good idea to get the girls to come out and perform this time and maybe bring in more people. Right on, because it sounds like a great event. You said um, Michael Hampton's pretty dedicated to that yeah, event, Yeah, he right? seems to show up every year and play with whoever has been uh, booked for the show. Um, last year, Shirley and I worked with a guy named Tony Cam, who was also part of the, oh, yeah, sure. the coalition that puts it together. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, we all performed with him last year, and I did with this this time unexpectedly because when I walked up to say hi to some of the guys I knew, they were like, "Get on up here!" And I'm like, "I didn't come to," and just put them like like pulled me up there. I'm like, "Okay, I'll go," you know. And it was kind of fun, you know. That's a real positive thing. Um, I'm really glad you all are doing that, those kind of events, that kind of scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad you guys keep that together. That's a real beautiful thing. Yeah, because every year it's like sort, certain older members of P-Funk, people that aren't with the group anymore, they're always involved in some of the bands that play. So I get to see some people I haven't seen in years, you know. It's kind of cool. That's and phenomenal. the fans are real good, too. They're great. The fans they? show up. They want autographs. They want pictures and it's really nice. It's a nice event. Do you remember the venue that it's at? Uh-huh. It's called the it used to be called the Bethesda Blues and Jazz Fest Club, but now they call it the Bethesda Theater. They the changed Bethesda the name. Theater? Uh-huh. And Earl Cecil, who owns the place, he used to manage P-Funk. He was tour manager for a few years. And he bought the club. He used to live in California. Now he's moved to Maryland. And he opened the club, I think, maybe three years ago. Because he used to have the, the ball at a different venue. And they decided to go with his club because it's bigger. It's kind of like more like a supper club kind of atmosphere, kind of like the Howard Theater has turned right, into. Right, right. Kind of got the same kind of setup. Well, that's groovy, and I hope all of you keep doing that. Keep the, you know, everybody that supports the funk, we all appreciate that. And I'm just trying to do my little bit over here. Um, 
You're a piano player, right? Uh huh. And I play a little bass too. <laughs> I oh oh okay okay. I heard that. Um, I saw some interview or something. You said at one point you said you wanted to be like a black Shirley Temple. No, that's what my mom <laughs> wanted me to be. This she was, wanted you to be. Yeah, she had because from three years old she had me going to talent shows doing. I'm a little teapot. That was my go-to thing to do. <laughs> and I think by the time I got to be about five or six, there was a guy that went on ahead of me that was playing piano. And I decided to have a little temper tantrum and said, I'm not going on unless I can do that. And my mother was like, are you kidding me? This is not the time for this. Okay. And I said, I'm not going to do teapot unless you promise to let me play, get piano lessons. And she said, okay, okay, just go on and do your thing. So... I'm like, okay. So <laughs> I got my way, and I took piano for about three years. We had one at home, but then we had to move because they decided they wanted to turn our neighborhood, which was very multicultural. We had Italians, uh, Poles, Germans, Spanish people, all kind of people lived in this nice little hood, and we were all really close and friendly. All, we all went to school together. So Is that in Columbus? Uh-huh, Columbus, because that's my original hometown. Mm-hmm. So they decided they wanted to make a freeway ramp into our neighborhood and destroy it. So everybody had to move and relocate. And it was kind of sad because we had such a close unit. Uh, it was, like I said, everybody kind of ate with each other and played with each yeah. other. And it was really very diverse. And so, of course, everybody went hither and where. So that was the end of that. We had My mom couldn't afford to move the piano, so we left it there. And I didn't have really? one for years. I didn't get another one until I got married to Gary, and he got me a baby grand. And I was like, awesome. I was he like, got you a baby grand? That. That's yes. beautiful. Yes. Uh, when I was in college at the University of Maryland, I would go into the music lab and practice and kind of re refresh myself on theory and that kind of stuff. And I would go in there every day after school and stay for a few hours. And then by the time I did get my piano, I was kind of cool again with it. Wow. Because that, that turned out to be really important later. Um, I want to ask you, so when you guys got married, you first lived to, you moved to Atlanta, uh -huh. and you lived there for a while, like about 15 yeah, years and stuff? Yeah, we lived there until my mom passed away, and since she was living in Maryland, and I'm the only child survivor, so I had to go up there and sell her house, deal with the estate, and I had gotten Garrett into Duke Ellington while we were there, because there was a lot of gang stuff going on at the time in that area. And I was Garrett very went to Duke Ellington uh -huh. uh, Music School? He went school? to Duke Ellington, uh-huh. And I, once I got him in, I didn't want to take him out and move him back down to Atlanta, so we decided to stay. That's a wonderful opportunity. Yes, it was. We uh, got him very comfortable with the stage, and, you know, he was in the show choir, so they performed all over the place. They went out of the country sometimes at the White House. Wow. Uh, they, they did, a, they were, and it was very, their show was really nice. They'd be all in tuxedos, and the girls would be in gowns, and they just looked so cool doing these little dance steps and stuff. And so it got him very comfortable with being on stage. Who did he play for at the White House? Uh, they, oh, who was it? It must have been, I think it must have been during the Bush era, I would remember, if I remember correctly, Jordan Bush. I know it was before Obama, so it was probably Bush. Got you. What about what period of your life was it when you were appearing in like films and commercials and TV shows? Because I knew you did that for a while. That was in Atlanta. That was like, um, I guess maybe in the 80s. Okay. Because I did a couple of In the Heat of the Nights, which was uh, produced in Atlanta. I did uh, the Dan Daniel Day Lewis's first movie called Stars and Bars. Yeah, I saw that Stars and Bars that with uh, Harry Dean Stanton Harry and Dean like Stanton, Joan Cusack. Joan Cusack and Daniel Day Lewis. That was his first American film. 
Wow, that's crazy. And what were you like a preferred extra in those? Or yes, because I got a lot of camera, and it seemed like every time I did something like that, the camera just seemed to come, follow me. You know, it's like they must, I, and I'd be like, why are they always in my face? You know, with all these other people around, and everybody would say, you look good. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> were you in RoboCop? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, RoboCop, uh, the one with um, the wrestler. Uh, Oh, uh, Hulk Hogan? Hulk Hogan, uh, that one. No Holds Barred? No Holds Barred. I was in that. Yeah. I had to see right next to Nancy Allen in, in the um, RoboCop one. And she's sitting there bopping. And I said, what are you listening to? And she's letting me. She said, it's James Brown. I'm like, cool, <laughs> you know. <laughs> cool. What's it like uh, working on a movie set? Is it like it's, boring or is it like fun? Or? It's kind of fun because while you're waiting for your scene, you're talking to other people and getting to know people. And sometimes they're giving you other jobs that are available to go check out. Um, and you just find ways to like keep yourself occupied, keep your energy up. Does it? What, did it pay well at the time? Was yeah. it a good gig to have? Yes, indeed. Uh huh. I'd never made less than say 150. Wow. And I had a very good agent, and she kept me busy. I did so many things, commercials, TV shows. I think I told you about the play I was in, Foreclosure. Yeah. And we did that at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. Then we took it to New York for about three weeks, and it was a little theater in the village. And it got very good reviews. It was called Foreclosure. I read a crazy story that you like drove up on a Klan rally one time, like oh. almost like right into it. Right in the middle of it. That yeah. sounds frightening. It really was, and I was by myself too. We when, just, when was that? This was probably in the eighties, and it was we were living in Newt Gingrich's area where he represented. Newt Gingrich. And he used to walk down the street <laughs> all the time. We'd be often like he owned the place. You would see him. See him all the time. Uh huh. <laughs> But like I said, we had just moved to this area called Riverdale, Georgia. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So I'm going out to go shopping, fill the refrigerator up, turn the corner on this street called Highway 85, mm -hmm. right into the middle of a Klan rally. They've got the hoods on. they got guns on their hips. And I, and I was so shocked at guns first. Guns on their hips. Oh, my God. I didn't know what to do. I just kind of paused for a minute, and I was like, and I was by myself, too, so I really was kind of scared. But then after I thought about it, because I had never seen the Klan except on television, you know, before this. Sure. So here they are, right in my face. And at first it was like, kind of took my breath away. Then I got pissed. And I just right. started gunning my, my, my engine. And I'm like, okay, you're going to either let me through or I'm going to plow through your butts. You, you know? started revving the engine. So they let me through. I got home. I said, Gary, I think we need to move. <laughs> he said, we just moved in. What's wrong with you? And I told him what had happened. And he said, well, we can't let them run us out. We're going to be okay. But they did burn a cross in our yard one night. And they used to follow us home. Sorry, say it again. Sorry. They, did they burn a cross in your yard one night? On Thanksgiving On Eve. Thanksgiving? Mm-hmm. And I didn't see it. Gary told me about it a couple of days later because he didn't want because he knew I was already uncomfortable in that after all the stuff that was what going on. What do you mean on. you didn't see it? How did you not see it? He made I was asleep when he got up to, uh, in the middle of the night to do something. He saw it and he took it down and got rid of it real fast. Wow. Yeah, he didn't want me and the kids to see it because he knew it was a bit scary. Oh my goodness, my goodness. And like I said, they used to follow us home with their high beams, like they wanted to see where we lived. It was kind of, that area was very intensely clannish. Wow. And we didn't know it until we moved, and you know, until we got there. So we stayed in that place about, hmm, maybe two or three years. Then we moved to another area. Wow. Yeah, I bet moved to another area. Mm -hmm. Wow, that sounds 
amazingly intense. I'm kind of like stunned by that, just trying to picture that. And you then can't imagine. Oh. That was big of that was a big thing, Gary, to take everything down and not even upset yeah. you all. Yeah, that's he didn't amazing. want us to be afraid. It was already uncomfortable, so that would have been taking us over the edge for sure. Let me ask you because I think you're the person for me to talk to as far as I never really got straight when when Gary entered the group. So was he in the group United Soul, they were called? Yes, it was okay. him and Boogie. I think there was a girl. I don't know. I think she was from Triano. I don't know her name. Uh, but that's when George finally decided he was going to put him and Boogie into the group. So first they had their own group at first, right? And mm -hmm. then he pulled United them in. Soul was theirs. Was Glenn Goins also part of that? No. Okay, he wasn't part of that. Mm -mm. Was anybody else like that we would know in United Soul? No, I don't, I don't remember who was the drummer or the other the girl I told you was in the group. I don't didn't I never uh, met, met her, so I don't know her name. But I think it was just maybe a four piece. So they had a drummer, him and get a boogie on bass, Gary on guitar. I don't think the girl played anything. I think she was just a singer, backup singer or something. Did United Soul do that song "Be What You Is"? They did when I miss my baby. When I miss my baby. That okay. Was, uh -huh. Okay. Because I think I have an old Westbound compilation. That I think I got one of their songs on. Okay. So I'm thinking like Canada had something to do with that group. Or yeah, they were wrong? all living in Toronto. They got they went to Toronto to escape the draft because it was still okay. Vietnam was still right. going large and heavy. So they went to Toronto on Garrett George's um, recommendation. So they moved up there, and that's when they really got seriously into the P Funk family. Nice, and maybe. There might have been a little room because Eddie and Billy. They would come and go. Yeah. Because they were, you know, the drug thing was real heavy with them. They were, you know, doing heroin and they just weren't as reliable. Like when I first met George in the group, it was uh, Mudbone. No, not Mudbone. It was um, Bootsy and his brother Catfish, mm -hmm. Harold being on bass, Tyrone Lampkin playing drums, mm -hmm. and of course, you know, Calvin and Fuzzy and Ray and, um, and George. That was the group then. But that's around the time when Boosie decided he wanted to go on to his own thing. And uh, that's when I think he brought Eddie back. Right. He brought um, Billy back. Billy would come and go. Eddie would do the same. He, they'd stay for a while. Then they'd move on and do something else and come back and go. And they were always welcome because, you know, George had a lot of respect for their music. What did you think of the... P-Funk thing like before you were in it or before you knew oh them when you were just kind of I aware of it. They were like, to me, they were like the Black Rolling Stones. The Black their, Rolling Stones? Their Stone? aura, the way that they, they uh, hung, did their, you know, the way that they, their, their vibe basically, I guess. They were just so intense and, you know, they were real sexy. On stage, they were real sexy. And uh -huh. so, you know, that's kind of that was kind of my my love for Mick Jagger and the Stones. Sure. You know, I loved watching him do his thing, walking around, you know, across the stage like he owned it. You're pretty rock and roll. You had a, yeah. a group that you led called Legs, right? With the yeah. Z. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, what was being a band leader like for you? You didn't like it? You liked it? I, it was okay. I wasn't really, you know, like a strict person because, you know, I'm feeling my way through just like everybody else. And um, the reason we broke up, we had a big show coming up. And I had brought them up to the house to rehearse. And they just, they had by then they had gotten a little ego-y, you know, because we were getting a lot of success. We were like Andy Young's go-to band when he was running for mayor. We did all his events. Oh, we had done this uh, yeah. thing at Peachtree Park. 
Piedmont Park, rather, which was like about 20,000 people ended up on, on the news. And we're like, so they're starting to like get this thing going on, you know, got this ego going on. So I said, we're going to rehearse. And like I said, we got to fix a couple of things. And they quit on me. And I was like, ah. Oh. And then they went and did the gig without me. Oh. <laughs> so I was crushed. And I was like, oh. Gary said, well, you were coming off a little strong. I said, I was just trying to get him to rehearse. I thought we had a couple of things we need to plug, you know, holes we need to plug. And he's like, well, I think you fixed that one real good. <laughs> and I'm like, thanks a lot, fella, you know. You were together at that time. When did you guys, or where did you meet? Where did you meet Gary? I met him, okay, um, when I met George and then I was a flight attendant with Pan Am. Oh. And so, you know, since I had met him out here in San Francisco, quite by accident. Um, you met them here? Mm-hmm. I had a friend that had just moved here from D.C., and she had gotten married and had a couple of kids. And so she said, so I said, I'm coming to San Francisco for a couple of weeks. I got some time off. And she said, well, come on out. But she said, since I'm married and stuff, if you want to really get to see the city and have some fun, I want to introduce you to my friend Vera Oliver. So Vera had dated Bernie for years before he got married. Bernie World? Uh-huh. So they were coming out, and she said, you can come over. She said, but I'm having... George and Bernie and Ray Davis are going to be staying here if you don't have a problem with it. I said, hey, I love that group. I'd love to meet them. So she said, well, come on out. So I, we all stayed there, and Vera was driving them to their shows in her little Volkswagen bus. <laughs> Volkswagen <laughs> so bus. we're all cozy, comfy, riding around, going to Berkeley and here and there, you know. Then um, George flew us all down to L.A. to this wild party, and he had these two girls with him. They were from Boston, and they were like, I don't know how intense, you know, how much you want me to talk about stuff like this. It's up to you. I love to hear about it. <laughs> okay, well, the girls, they were Rachel, Rachel and Debbie. They did a song about Rachel called Trash a Go-Go. So they were like his go-to freaks, I guess. I don't know how else to say it. And so we go to this party in L.A., and it was kind of a really wild party. A lot of drugs, a lot of people doing whatever. And so the two girls, the, Rachel and Debbie, decided to go in the bathroom and, and make love to each other. So wow. all the fellas go into the bathroom. <laughs> and so me and Vera and her cousin said, well, we got the coat. Let's, we'll just sit here and have it. <laughs> while they're doing, doing their thing, we'll just sit here and we'll just have our own little party. So we didn't go and watch. Vera kind of peeped a little bit. She said, girl, you won't believe what's going on. I said, I kind of <laughs> think I know. So I'm good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they kept in touch with me. And when they would come to D.C., they'd stay at my place, and I'd have a trip or something. I said, just don't burn it down and, you know, take care of my stuff. And they did. They'd wash the dishes. I'd come home, and it would be nice and neat. So one time, before I was getting going to a trip, they had come over. George was there. I think Ray was there. And Gary came over to borrow some money. So I went over to change a record, and he said, hmm, nice ass. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of heard it, and I'm like, okay, but I had a boyfriend at the time, so I wasn't really trying to go there. So the next time I saw him, like I told you, the production company we worked for, we had booked a show with Weather Report, the jazz group. Wow, yeah. And they didn't show up. So my mm. boss is freaking out. We had sold out the place, and he's like, Linda, call some of your friends. I'm like, well, who do you want me to call? I said, oh, I know. I said, P-Funk's in Philly. Maybe I can get them to come. So I called George, and he said, sure, we'll come and do it. So they came and did it. That's the second time I saw him. He was like, he said he saw me in this dress I had on, which was kind of really kind of cool. And he's like, I like that girl. 
And so people were telling me that he was, you know, he was saying these kind of things. And I'm like, well, I'm still with my boyfriend. I'm like, I don't know, I'm not going to do that. The final thing was my roommate at the time, she was doing taxes for Fred Wesley. She and Fred, and she was, okay. dating, she was dating Rick Gardner, one of the horny horns. Rick Gardner, yeah, uh-huh. I interviewed him one time. Yeah. So she was dating him, and she said, well, I have Fred's taxes. Would you mind running me to Baltimore so I can drop him off? I hadn't seen the guys in about t- maybe two years. So I said, sure, I'll go over. I haven't said hi to everybody. I haven't seen them in a long time. So we go to Baltimore, uh, went to the show, and Gary was like, the Washington Post is going to take a picture of me putting my diaper on. Would you help me do that? And I said, no. I said, my mother, <laughs> my mother looks at the Post. If she sees me doing something like that, I'll never hear the end of it. I'm not doing that. So he said, oh, so good. So, <laughs> so after the show, we go back to the hotel. And this guy's in the lobby saying he's going to shoot George about some girl he thought he was messing around with. So Gary pushes me in the phone booth. I'll protect you. And I'm like, oh, my hero. <laughs> he's protecting me from gunfire. So he finally kind of, and I'm getting ready. So he to really go. was diaper man. Yeah. Wow. You know, that, that was something else that kind of stayed in my right. mind, you know, that whole concept. Okay. So I'm getting ready to go home and my car won't start. So he said he went in the bathroom and said, I got her at last. So we went to this party that they had for Michael Hampton. I think Dawn mentions it in her book. Right. So we go over to the party. Same party? No, this is another one. This is in in Baltimore. Okay, okay. So we're looking at same kind of vibe, though. (laughs) So anyway, (laughs) we go in there, and it's all dark and kind of looking kind of creepy. And so Gary said, we're not going to stay long. I said, I'm kind of glad. I don't think I really want to be here. And so we left and went back to the hotel, and we decided we were going to be a couple. Oh From then my on, God. we, you know, we did our thing, and we decided we were going to keep in touch. And eventually, he's like, "Come on the road with me." And then, uh, so I would drive and follow the, the tour bus. And then we got to the point, and or he'd fly me in to different shows and stuff. And so, um, the first time I actually performed with them was at Madison Square Garden. Because once again, someone in the Jeez. crowd has a, was shooting, mm-hmm. and every, all the girls got scared and ran off the stage. And he grabbed me and said, "Come on out here and get on this mic." And I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> you sure it's okay?" He said, "Sure, go ahead. You know, I got you." So I ended up on the cover of Rock and Soul magazine because of that show. I said, "Why would they decide to put a picture of me?" I mean, I it seems like un, unknowingly a lot of times I was getting. Uh, looked at or getting kind of like you caught people's eye yeah yeah that's what i'm saying and i didn't even realize it because i'm just being me doing my thing that's amazing that story is so romantic and crazy <laughs> that needs to be a comic book on itself <laughs> he's like Are, i got her at last i said you really did that and he said yeah i went in the bathroom and he said i was like oh finally you know <laughs> eureka <laughs>
Speaking of Red Hot Mama, that was your tune to do live after a while, right? Oh, you didn't just yeah. sing it more than you sang it more than once, yeah, right? Yeah, I did it a lot. And it's <laughs> always been my favorite cause, and I, I just added a little something personal on in the beginning just to make it kind of my own thing, you know. So I did I started off let me tell you a story da, 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 about a smoking hot girl da, 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 on her way to Savannah. Da, da, da. Let's call her. Let's call her maybe Hannah. And she bumped, bumped away, and she hump, humped away till she got there. Oh yes, she did. I said she hump, humped away, and she bump, bumped away till she got there. Yes, she did. And that's how I started. And then wow. <laughs> that's a lot more I put than my I own thought. spin on it. That you is know? your own spin. And that's cool. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That reminds me. So let me ask you then. Let me jump to that. Um, one thing. Uh, okay. So our fifth episode of this podcast, uh-huh. I interviewed Jim Wright. Calls himself JW now. JW, yeah. And uh, one of the songs that uh, we picked of his that he played on and we opened it up to the show as kind of a theme song, and I really like it, is um, Are You Dreaming? Okay. The Parlette song. Uh-huh. And uh, I just love that song so much. I think it's so cool. And I didn't realize that you're the writer of that. Yeah. And so I just want to ask you about that. First of all, it's so unusual because, I don't know if this makes sense, but it almost reminds me of like David Bowie or something. It's like a mid-tempo, like freaky. It has a beautiful <laughs> vocal. Can you tell me about that? Like, how did that come together? What's well, the idea of that song? Like, just tell me about it. We were in the studio at United Sound in Detroit where we recorded all, most of the P-Funk stuff. Right. And um, I think they were either starting a song or they were editing or something. So I was in, there's a baby grand in the hallway. So I just started playing. Mm-hmm. And George came by and he said, hmm, I like that. And he said, Gary... Um, you know, he said, figure out the chords and stuff, and let's co-record that bad boy. And he said, I think I'm going to use that for a parlette. So I hadn't even gotten to the lyrics yet. So once I heard the whole musical thing gelling, that's when I came up with the, the lyrics. What are, what are you thinking of? What are the lyrics about? I really I love it so much. It's so unusual but catchy. It was a love song. A lot of the stuff that Gary and I did were that, that kind of that material, kind uh-huh. of love song, because we were so in love with each other. You know, we were hot and heavy, and we just kind of like shared it with people. That's beautiful. There's another love song that you did that I don't think you, you kind of weren't too happy about. Um, uh, <laughs> the Doo Doo Chasers. The Doo Doo Chasers oh. from, which by the way is a cool, it's cool as hell. Love it. <laughs> But I see what you mean. So that's got the slow, that was like a slow romantic love vibe yes. too. Did you and Gary write that together? Yes. Off yes, I'm talking did. about the One Nation album. And uh, when did it come to your attention that the lyrical idea is putting over that? Um, when, when Gary finished the vocals, George came in, he listened to it, and he said, that's too sweet. That's too. What vocals did he record? He, uh, you're as sweet as any uh-huh. flower. He did the whole thing. He did. He did all the lyric vocals on that, and so it was. We thought it was finished. George came in and listened to it and said, "No, that's too pretty. That's too sweet. We got to put some stank on it." When we heard it afterwards, after we heard his input, we were like. We were both furious. Like, how could you? You basically destroyed a beautiful song and turned it literally into shit. <laughs> literally into shit. That's how I approached him, and he was like, he's laughing, thinks it's funny. But I was pissed. 
And every time someone asks me that, I have to re- remind myself how angry that made me. <laughs> that he basically destroyed that song. Did you <laughs> destroy it? And put it, it on the lay, and put it on the record like that. Did you, um, or did he ever get a chance to redo it, or like the way you intended no, it, or no? You but just other said... groups have been doing it. There's a group in uh, a white rock group in um, Portland, Oregon. Okay, they've done it without the doo doo stuff on it. <laughs> so people <laughs> can tell. Uh huh. Yeah, other yeah. people have always approached me and said how much they liked it without that stuff on it, and a lot of different groups have used used doing the song, so it makes me proud. I do like I like when he says fear of being eaten by a sandwich. I like that one. <laughs> but I can see that because it's actually so beautiful. The guitar lines on it. Mm-hmm. And that's another there's a lot of rock feel on stuff that you bring, like rock and pop. Yeah. Didn't Gary say that you kind of like a pop writer? Uh-huh. Like you bring like the pop feel. Hey, to that's it? what he told me. I bought the pop to the P funk because my 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 hear what I hear in my head is that kind of stuff, you know. Like I said, I grew up on rock and roll. Right. The Beatles and Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and all those kind of guys. They were my guys. I loved that music. Didn't you even in Legs like do like Black Sabbath yes, covers and did. stuff? We did Black Sabbath. <laughs> we did ACDC. I sang Back in Black. Back um, in Black. I sang that one, yeah, Back in Black. Um, <laughs> we had some originals that were kind of on the rock tip. I don't know if you got a chance to see It Don't Come Easy on... Um, yes. Did you get a chance to hear it? Yeah, yeah. I heard, okay, heard that the was, whole thing. That was like one of our originals. Did you... Um, the intro to that, again, that's another one. I'm talking about It Don't Come Easy. Uh, it's put out by Legs. Mm-hmm. Um, did you write that intro? Yeah. Because, again, it's like... It's crazy. It's almost like Queen or like Bohemian Rhapsody. It's like it's really uh, intricate. Yeah, that was. What's I get, the influence of that? Or I don't know you, where that where came from. from. It just like I said, the when the juices were flowing, they were flowing. And you know, I can't really tell you everything that made me put stuff into music, into my music. It would just be a feel I had or something that I heard in my head, and I just throw it out there. It's really uh, something else because when somebody says like, "Hey, I write songs or whatever," you're like, "Cool," but you know, when I hear the stuff that you come up with, it's always very. It's challenging but catchy. It's a little above average of, I don't know, you have, uh, the musical training is evident. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. How did it feel to, because I talked with um, Don a lot, actually, on the unfortunate side of P-Funk women not getting credit, not getting props. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk more about props later because I want to talk with you. I know you have opinions on that. Mm -hmm. Just, you know. And then, so how did it feel for you? So you you were credited on things you did. Were you credited credited on everything you did? Not or? everything. What other things uh, are you I uncredited did, on? Okay, like I think uh, Bernie's album, The Woo Warriors, all the Woo Love World, that. rather. I didn't get credit for the vocals I did on that. I think there was another one called The Sweat Band, went on Bootsy's I projects. love Sweat Band, yeah. I don't think You're I got on credit that? On, that, on that stuff either. Those are two of my favorite albums. Yeah, I got did both of them. I don't think I got my name on either of those albums that I know of. Any other uh, writing credits or something that you think you should have gotten? Or no, I think everybody, everything that I did, got I got credit for. And in, you in the writers, you and Gary just playing like did a lot of stuff together, right? Oh, and yeah. like over the years, all yeah. different kind of formats, like yes. real to real, a dad. Sure did. Sure is, did. Is that what some of the Tale of Two Funkies albums the is? The Tale of Two Funkies, those were at the, we had done those, I think, on the computer Pro Tools. Right. So he made discs, he had discs, we had discs of those. 
All the other stuff is either on cassette, it's on reel-to-reel, or it's on ADATs. And those kind of things are kind of hard to find these days. People don't, everybody's doing computer stuff now, you know? How many years, because he was like the band leader, right? Band leader. How, how many years did he have that role? It's like over 30 years, 35 years? I'd say at least 35 he was. He had already started before we got together, so that would have probably been in the early seventies. Like I said, when Eddie and them were coming and going, he was he was the only one that stayed and hung in there. And uh, it got to the point where he was like the one that opened up the show, get the crowd pumped up. Right. Yeah, I remember. Like in a the whole studio, thing. he would be the vocal arranger. He'd produce because most of the time George was out doing drugs somewhere or sleeping with some chick. I and heard he like like basically produced like trombibulation. Yeah. And- yeah. Every time I talk to somebody else in P-Funk, they always talk about Gary. His name mm-hmm. comes right up, mm-hmm. unprompted. Mm-hmm. He did this, he did this. He was great about this. Mm-hmm. Both of you, everybody remembers you, remembers you both fondly. Well, that, um, that's touching. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, so I'm very interested in how that worked. So you, no better person than you to ask. So what did that look like, Gary being band leader like did he warm up new members mm-hmm. how, how did he work because I, I know he's like kind of a humble guy you said yes he was so like in a leadership role like i'm trying to picture that like how one what did his, it look like one of his favorite sayings was i'm no better than my surroundings no better than my surroundings mm-hmm. he said that all the time and so what do you mean George, by that he was like i can't do what i'm doing unless there's people around me that are keeping up basically you know mm-hmm. so um when new people would come into the group, he'd kind of try to like help them figure their way, feel their way into what they were supposed to be doing. And another thing he always say, get in where you fit in. Don't oversing, don't overplay, you know, just kind of blend, you know, go with the flow. He knew how to get the best out of people. I, I, can, I can imagine that. It sounds like it. How often did you guys rehearse for shows? Because like the shows would be going on. I would have to leave. I saw one show at the Maritime Hall. After five and a half hours, like I was out. (laughs) (laughs) I have to go home now. I know there'd be like multiple drummers like changing, Mm -hmm. you know, so it would just keep coming, keep Mm -hmm. coming. So like, um, what was the situation for preparing for a show like that? Was there a set list or you guys just go, let's do this song, this song or... The we the set list usually ended up going out the window, right? Because George would, you know, we'd say, "Well, we're getting ready to do Red Hot Mom." No, we're going to do "Standing on the Verge," and everybody would. But what about Red Hot Mom? Standing on the Verge. Okay, you know he's changed it again. Yeah, right, right. And then we it would goes rehearse sideways. for like a big show, like when they brought the Mothership out. We went up to this place called Fishkill, New York, and we rehearsed for about a week or two. Fishkill? Uh-huh. There's a prison up there. <laughs> wow. I've never heard of that. That's it's cool. Like, it's like way upstate New York. So we rehearsed the Mothership tour with at the, at that spot. It was like an airport, airplane hangar. Wow. Oh, so yeah. Would, I heard of that. Enough airplane to, hangar. Know, big enough for the spaceship and stuff to fit in. So we know what to do and when to come out and all that kind of stuff. But oh, my normally God. Normally, we didn't rehearse. We just, we know, everybody knew the stuff, so we just... Whatever he called out, we'd just do it. George, I'm talking about. Who was all operating? Or how many people would have to operate all that stuff? Oh, my uh, God. The crew for the spaceship, the mothership tour was intense. There had to be at least 20 extra technicians and stuff. One person flipping up the, the uh, switch to make the, uh, him go up and down. Another one taking care of the spaceship. And then there was a little spaceship that used to go across the place. 
one time it caught fire. Oh my god! <laughs> and we were sitting there cracking up. <laughs> I said they finally burned that mother. <laughs> they burned that mother. Wow! Did Gary ever get hurt uh, flying around or anything no, like that? No, he didn't. But like I said, every time he did it, my heart was in my mouth until they brought him down on, on back to earth again. <laughs> I saw something. Um, so speaking of props again, I saw something where you were saying. You would try to get Gary to stick up for himself more. Mm-hmm. You would often like push him for this that, and other publishing, whatnot. I'll, I'll tell you something. The very Go ahead. One of the first things that George told me when he saw me getting closer to entering into his group was, "Don't ever discuss business with my band." Uh, this what was the mean? night that he, we booked him when Weather Report didn't show up. Okay. After he paid everybody, and him and I were sitting, and my boss were sitting in the, in the uh, room, and he said. Don't ever discuss business with my band. I said, why would you not want them to know how to take care of their publishing and stuff? That's my business, and it's none of their business. Then that's how he put it. So I would always kind of like, I could make deals for Gary with other people, but he would never let me confront George about maybe a pay increase or something like that. He would say, he said, you're going to like turn them off, and it's going to probably blow up in your face anyway, so just leave that alone. He said, I know how they're going to screw me. I don't know if I hook up. I'll give you a perfect example. Okay. When Lionel Richie left the Commodores, Mm -hmm. their manager came to him and offered him a million dollars to sign with him and replace him. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, are you crazy? He just offered you a million dollars. Wait a second. Gary was offered to replace Lionel Richie in the Commodores? Commodores. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's offered a million for that. A million dollars. And the guy said, sign me with me and I'll give you a million dollars. And he said, and I'm not going to... Uh, screwed you and Gary said I know how they F me I don't know what you're going to do I'm not going to do that no thanks by the and way how did Gary get on their radar for that gig that's fine he just happened we just happened to be at a show they were at the Fox Theater in Atlanta yeah and we went to the show I think there was somebody else I think maybe Cameo was on there uh-huh. no no the Barcades and him and Larry were real tight so we went down to see the Barcades and um, Commodores were on the show as well and so we're backstage and the guy said I know you you're Gary Scheider from P-Funk. And he's like, yeah. So he started talking to him, and I was standing right beside him when he offered him that money, and he turned it down. And I said, Gary, he just offered you a million dollars. George is paying you, what, 150 a show, and you're going to turn that down? And he that's what he kept saying. He said, I know how they're screwing me. I don't know what I'll be walking into with them, and so I'm not going to do that. And wow. he did that every time someone else came up and offered him another sp- uh, option. I al- you know what? I, that's I always wondered about that because you know I see people go in and out, in and out, come and go with mm-hmm. P Funk, but mm-hmm. Gary would always be there consistently mm-hmm. year after year, show after show, and I always he wondered. He loved being in that group. He loved it, and he had a thing for George, like a father figure kind of relationship with him, even though it was only one sided. Because George, you know, he. What do you mean? George would when George wanted someone to join his group, he would wine and dine them give them girls, whatever they were into, drugs or something. And once they got into the group, he would just like, oh, now you're just like a miscellaneous puzzle piece. You know, I can replace you. There's always somebody in the wings that's going to, wants to do your job. And he would like, kind of like divide and conquer. So he did the same thing with Gary when he first met Gary. Gary was like 16. He wined and dined him and took him to all these weird places, you know, sex stuff and all kind of crazy (laughs) stuff. You know, he went to see a girl screw a donkey (laughs) <laughs> and he told me about that and I said 
I can't even imagine. <laughs> Where did something like that take place? You know, I was like, he did. He took you where? Oh my God! You know. <laughs> and once he got into the group, he was like, he just used him, like he used everybody else. Did he? Did you guys clash? I mean, you and Gary. Did you guys clash about that, or did you just try to nudge him, or did you really I try to? I always tried to push him, and he would just, after a certain point, he, I could tell it was I was wasting my time. And also, sometimes when he was willing to make a change, George would have his people go to whoever was trying to uh, take him out, and he would intimidate them or threaten them. Wow. Tell me about, like, so what is it, Bridgeport Publishing? Um, they would take most of the the money? Yes. Th there was a deposition when uh, this guy, Nanny Montez, the one who did the Chango in Paris that I Ch told you about, uh -huh, right. he was the one that put that together. And he came in as a management with George for a while. And um, so he sued Armin, and Armin did a deposition, right, and I got a chance to see a video deposition where he's, where and his partner, Jane Peterer, I think she was the one that actually t spilled the beans. She said, I'll give you an example. She said, Gary would own $200,000 for a quarter in his royalties, and Armin would say it was $20,000. He'd keep the 180000 and tell Gary that he owed him for, for an advance. So he'd get the leftovers, or he'd just buy him a car and not pay him at all, that kind of stuff. Where do things stand legally now with all that stuff? Is there any... Um... <sighs> well, Judy Worrell, she sued George, and she's at the point now where he's trying to figure out how to settle with her to get her out of his hair. So she's probably going to come off with a nice piece of money. Good. And like I said, she's the only one that's been able to do that. Because everybody else he sued, uh, he even sued Bridgeport, I think, and finally got his master's back. And for another example, he sued the Black Eyed Peas for using Knee Deep. Uh -huh. And he told me straight up, Linda, we're going to get a lot of money from the Black Eyed Peas. I'm going to sue them. And so when he, the lawsuit went through and he got the money, he kept every penny up for himself. Junie's uh, daughter didn't get a dime. I didn't get a dime. And he walked away with all the money. I really hope that that precedent that's set, that maybe that could um, set something up for the rest of you all, and hope, I hope more things are coming to you in the future, because you deserve everything and more, um, especially with the legacy and what you guys um, provided to music history. It's I'm really sorry to say that Gary sold his publishing to Bridgeport for, at the time it was probably worth at least $1.5 He sold it for 250000 well, all like some big publishing. package deal, like all mm -hmm. this stuff? So now Bridgeport owns all his publishing. He sold his BMI money to a company in L.A. called Royalty Funding, and he sold all his BMI publishing for, what did he get from them, about 18 grand? And he was getting like 13, 15, a quarter, 15,000 I'm talking about, 13,000. So... Um, and I tried my best. It's, I kept pointing to him in the contract, this is for perpetuity. You'll never get this stuff back. Do you realize what you're signing? And you asked him like, that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But see, what I didn't know was that he was sick. I didn't know he had cancer. He knew he, something was going on. He just wouldn't deal with it. He just was trying to act like it was going to go away. You know, I, don't, I guess that macho thing, I'm okay, you know. Wait a minute. I didn't know that. Wait a second. So... I, I, we, I have a friend, actually, that I used to play music with who did the same thing. So did he know very clearly, like explicitly, that he was sick, or he just knew something was wrong? But He the knew doctor... something was wrong, but he wouldn't go to the doctor. What really finally made him go, and this was like 
he signed the contract with Bridgeport, I think, in December of t- 2009. By May, no, by March of 2010, it got to the point where he couldn't play. His hands weren't working. I woke up one night and he had his hands was, weren't working. He couldn't. He he told my sons. He said, "I can't play. My hands are something's wrong with my hands. I can't play." I w- woke up one morning and there was blood on the pillow, and I looked at him and I knew it was. I said, "You have nosebleeds or something?" He said, "Yeah." And I said, "But I'm okay, okay." Then I found out from a boogie that he was his head was hurting so bad he was actually banging his head against the wall trying to diffuse it or something, you know. Oh, geez, because he had brain cancer and lung cancer. Oh, goodness. And he he was just too proud, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. I I finally dragged him to the doctor because I could tell something was really off, you know. And the doctor told him that by the time he actually went, he was in stage four cancer, and he needed to go in the hospital immediately. He comes out of the doctor's office, we're going on the road. And I'm like, (laughs) the the guy just told you that you're, you know, I don't care what he says, we're going on the road. And it was so awful to watch him because uh, within the two weeks that we were out there, he was deteriorating so quickly. At one point, he, he couldn't even stand up anymore. That you were out there. So did you go on the road, you mean? Mm-hmm. And I'd be doing the show, and I'd be trying to keep my eye on him. And um, so he'd just be standing there like this. He couldn't play. He couldn't sing. He'd just be standing there. I guess he wanted to absorb the audiences one more time. And that's wow. kind of how it felt, you know, because, and I asked George, I said, he's not listening to me. Would you please try to help me get him to go home and get in the hospital like he needs to be? I'm not going to tell a grown man what to do. I oh, wanted to geez. punch him in his face. I really did. I, I bet. I, I wanted bet. to hit him so so bad. I couldn't stand it. That's, you know, what you said about he wanted to feel the audience. And by the way, thank you for sharing all of that. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. What you said about him wanting to feel the audience one more time. That is so, that makes sense to me because whenever, I know we, I say we, like everyone in the audience saw Gary, everybody just starts smiling. Like he was like the, I don't know what you call it, like the herald, like like he was the the glue that held everything together. He was always the first, like you said, like he was the first to come out and kind of get it going. Mm -hmm. And uh, he'd be out there for a while warming up, maybe just playing guitar for a while, not even, you know, doing some instrumental for a Mm -hmm. while. Uh, That his voice just like that soaring, powerful voice, mm-hmm. uh, the power behind that, I just know it made everybody feel so good. And then it's just interesting, and it feels good to know that that was going in the other direction too, almost to the point where he wasn't going to take care of himself because it's just that feeling, that mm-hmm. you know, that feeling of the music. Mm-hmm. I know that's probably what kept him there when you're talking to him about the money and being funny or maybe other opportunities. I know he finally did do an opportunity. Let me talk to you about that Chango in Paris mm-hmm. um, Vegas gig. Tell me about that because that was a pretty big show. Well, um, that was at UCLA's. Um, uh, oh, sorry, sorry. I thought it was a Vegas. No, no. The, he was called. Uh, Nanny used to call him Gus Vegas, Got and it. he Got really that's wanted Gary to that. do that kind of. St- he wanted to take him to Las Vegas and get him into that kind of field, and so. Um, we recorded this stuff with Nanny, I don't know, back in the 70s, I guess. And so he decided he wanted to do a live performance of the stuff that we had recorded with him. So like Afro-Cuban stuff? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because we had a lot nice. of conga players, Cuban. Most of the uh, drummers were Cuban. Frankie Cash played drums. He played nice. drums. 
I told you, like Dermot Mulroney was playing cello right I know, that's me. crazy. The actor Dermot yeah, Mulroney, Mulroney was young guns. And I was like, what is he doing here? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. And then you know some really cool folks. Wow. <laughs> so um, it was just kind of like, that's the, that's the day that he also went and did that royalty funding deal and sold his BMI stuff while we were out there doing this, doing that same, show. Same time? Mm-hmm. I think he did it that day. Before the show, that was a different like branding for him because like he didn't have mm-hmm. the diaper on. No right? diaper. What was he had on the <laughs> caftan. It was kind of like a wine color, trimmed in gold. He looked like an African prince. I mean, he looked he looked so good, in a whole different genre, you know. And so they, when they brought it out, I'm like, "Are you going to wear that?" And he's like, "Oh, you know what I normally wear." I said, "But I think you need to try this one. I think you need to try this." I said, "Because with the whole vibe, we're going on. All the girls had on white." And red berets or red sashes or something red. I think the guys also were in white. All the Cubans were in white and red. Wow. And here he's out there looking like an African prince. It was so cool. How did it go? How was it received? Oh, it went great. It went great. It was a really good show. How come and it was so much fun. How come they didn't continue then or was something funky about it? We found out that Nini was sick too. Then we didn't know he oh, also had cancer. Okay. And he seemed like shortly after that, he started going down real bad. Maybe that's why he wanted to do the project, huh? Mm-hmm. Actually, to see it, I mean, for it, make it make it to a live show, finally, you know, before he died. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, um, Sinbad, the comedian, uh-huh. Sinbad, uh-huh. isn't he like a big funketeer? Like, yeah. I think he we put on that, some show. He did that did you show tell me in about Aruba. In Aruba. So uh-huh. what was that? It sounded like it was like some very it huge event. It was like event. a funk festival. He had Cameo. He had P-Funk. Sinbad uh, put it together. We uh-huh. can't, wow. I okay. think Mandrill was on it, if I'm not mistaken. I love Mandrill. Barkays, maybe. Yeah, the Barkays, I think they were on it too. In Aruba. When was this? This was probably in 2000, maybe six, 2006. I never even heard of it. That's He did it two years in a row. And then that's when he lo- fell out with his... Uh, I think he was on Fox, fell out with Fox because he was using too many black uh, professionals. And they were like, you know, he was trying to give everybody a shot, like, you know, casting and um, technical stuff, you know, trying to get some of the brothers, get some of the black folks into the the business. And they didn't seem to like that. And they decided to cancel his show. That's whack, man. That's that's so beautiful that he did that show Mm -hmm. and he used his power to try Mm -hmm. to do something good. Yeah, he was trying his best when he had that TV show on. He was bringing all these black black crews in, trying to give them some credits and stuff, and let them get into the unions and all that kind of stuff. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was on Fox, and Fox didn't like that too much, and they decided to cancel his TV show. I think he plays a little too, if I'm not mistaken. Sinbad, like he might play that. a little bit. But that, I knew he supported the funk. That's cool. That's mm-hmm. really cool. What other really huge shows did you guys have? There's that Central Park one. Woodstock. Woodstock. That was awesome. That's on YouTube. That must have too. been nuts. And it was like just, you know, people for miles. I mean, I have never seen so many lights and so many. It was just, I know at least, least 300,000 people, if not more. The same thing with Central Park. It was just a sea of people as far as your eyes could go when he brought the mothership back out. So many amazing years. I know that um, you were even like on the, were you on the Grammys a couple times? Two times. The first time with the Chili Peppers. For Californication, right, right, right. <laughs> and that was kind of like scary because when we walked out on the, on the stage, here's Michael Jackson, Tina Turner, Quincy Jones, Elizabeth Taylor, all these 
big heavyweight sitting in the front row, and I came up there like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, oh my gosh, this is huge. I think this was the year when Prince and Brand and um, Beyonce opened it up, and they did a duet together when, to open it all up. So I took a deep breath, and I just said, okay, we got to do this. Let's go. You know, whenever there's like a thing to hype up the P-Funk people, it seems to always fall short for y'all. Um, like um, I saw and I liked, but I heard that you didn't like. Um, I, I took a trip to D.C. about four or five years ago, and I saw the African-American Museum. There's a music section up top. Mm -hmm. There's a P-Funk section. There's mm -hmm. like a Bootsy outfit. There's a, a mothership Clinton there. Outfit, the mothership. But I said, you're not a fan of that exhibit. I didn't like because they, they gave the, the band like a little 8 by 10. And right, I remember Everything that. else was all about George and Bootsy. And Bootsy wasn't even in P-Funk that long. So right. I mean, so to have him as the only other, my, I think my husband should have had his outfit, one of his outfits up there instead of Bootsy's. That didn't, and I spoke to someone yeah, at the Smithsonian about it. Yeah, definitely, diaper, yeah, mm -hmm. it's so iconic. Mm -hmm. And you spoke to somebody, who do you speak to about it? Uh, I can't remember his name offhand, but he's put another exhibit together, and they were using some of their clothing and stuff. So on Gary's birthday, they did a big spread in their, their um, website about him. Good. Trying to make up for it. Good. You know? At least they did that. That's good. Mm -hmm. That's important, and it's good that you, you're all advocating for that because that's really important. Because there's also... Um, I don't know why, because he goes so far back, but it was just that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Uh-huh. Oh, that was fun. That, that We enjoyed that. Oh, you did and enjoy it, that. Okay, but okay. But we were trying, the girls were kind of upset that we didn't get our show, get anything out of it. Well, yeah, know? right. They just always seem to underestimate our, our contribution to P-Funk. And we've talked to them. Shirley Hayden, especially from the Parlets, has talked Shirley to them. Shirley Hayden, yeah. I've Hall interviewed of Fame, her. Trying to get them to the, give us some kind of recognition, and it's just never happened. What's up, Shirley? You all um, <laughs> deserve that recognition. That always kind of disturbs me and irks me. So I'm just, I'm here just trying to pump that up. Yeah. It just seemed to me, first of all, when I first met them, they didn't have any girls. And I had told Bernie, I said, if you ever decide to put some girls in the group, give me a holler. I want to audition. And when I finally saw them with Jeanette and Debbie, I said, well, they finally did that, finally put some, some females out there. And um, I thought that we made them look good. We made them sound good because we made it sound more like the records because we'd all yeah. recorded them, so we knew the stuff inside out. And it just kind of gave them a whole nother feel, you know? It's wonderful. But they just never iconic. wanted to give us any kind of respect. And people sample those those licks and stuff you yeah. guys are singing and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you deserve it. Like when De La Soul did their Me, Myself, and I, they sampled mm -hmm. Gary all over it. Guess who got Gary's all over that. Guess That's who right. got the money for that? Not him. Mm -mm. George. That's right. Because he contacted him, them. The they they live in D.C. They have a restaurant kind of close to where we lived. Who does? And, uh, De La Soul. Oh, okay. At least one of the guys in mm -hmm. De La Soul. And um, so he used to come over to the house sometime, and Gary said, man, how come you all didn't pay me for, my, for, my, for the song? He said, oh, we did. We just gave it to George. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, oh, so no. Gary's like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I saw, I saw him actually go at George one time, and this was shortly before he got sick. Or mm -hmm. maybe he was already sick and it was just going to get it off his chest. We were in Las Vegas at the Hard Rock Cafe. We had done a show, that, and we were just kind of chilling afterwards, getting something to eat. And George said something to Gary that ticked him off, and he went at him 
like like a bull terrier and i was like finally you know you're all, yeah. yes i was like <laughs> i said I'm, and he said what's joyce asked me what's wrong with him i said <laughs> i said you <laughs> Do you remember what he said that ticked him off? I can't remember. No, it was just something that just kind of at the spare of the moment, he just flipped and he got in his face and he was <laughs> And I'm like, whoa. He finally flashed on yeah, him. Yeah, he finally snapped. I said, thank you, Jesus. Finally, you know. something else you didn't mention we did uh some stuff with this group from Asheville, north carolina called the big old nasty get down let's talk about that big old nasty get down that was such a fun gig my last the last time i actually toured with the group was with them just before covid hit and we did like two weeks down south and ended up in dc in george at this club in dc in georgetown that they were such a cool group to work with no egos they were and all of them are professional like you know college trained musicians and they have such a nice vibe about them. There's no egos, no head trips going on, no hairy druggies going on. That's just a lot of weed. They smoked a lot of weed. <laughs> Mucho marijuana. But um, we did a show in Asheville at this big theater. It was like a big festival kind of deal. And the Roots were on there. This was just before they got hired to go on the TV and do that show. And I'm looking at them. I'm like, this guy's playing a tuba. <laughs> in a funk band this is crazy and i had no idea how big they were going to get wow. they were just they had just gotten to i guess got their deal and were just getting blown up and next thing i know here they're on television um i really love talking to you um is what are you going to be working on in the future what do you have coming up are there any more stories any more recordings like i have been trying to do autobiography i've been working on it off and on for about four years I thought I had found a ghostwriter because, like I said, I get involved. I I paint. That would be great. I'd make jewelry, and I, you know, I get into a little bag or something, and I and I. You make just, jewelry, right? Mm -hmm, I paint. Um, wow. I have a great picture I did of Gary from a photograph someone took of him. But you painted? Mm-hmm. In nice. watercolors, I use acrylics. I use watercolor oil, just whatever my head, you know. Like I said, I'm, I'm very artistic, just by in, by nature, I guess, and so. When I get something in my head, I have to figure out how to get it out, you know. So I make jewelry and it just kind of, kind of helps me think, keeps my head on uh, in the game. Good. Uh, That's good for your mind. I thought I had a ghostwriter, and we were kind of vibing for about three or four months. But he's also a musician, and um, he works at John Hopkins in Baltimore. He does kind of like I guess their technical stuff, computer stuff or something. And he was, I was, you know, telling him some of the stories about my, my family and Gary's family and stuff. And then at the last minute, just around July, he just said, Linda, he wanted, he said, 
you know, I know you want a book. He said, I'm trying to sell articles because I can't really commit to anything further than that, and I haven't gotten any bites on it. So I've got this tour coming up, and I'm not going to be able to finish it. And I'm like, oh, God, because I thought if I could tell it to someone else that he could write it and I'd get it done finally, you know. So I'm back to square one with that again. We got to get that done. I want to I want to hear <sighs> that. I want to see that. I want to read that. Um, There's so much history so in my family. So many stories. I have a violin from the 1700s. One of my great-great-uncles who passed for white, because most of the fa- my family is really light-skinned, with straight hair and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And so he played with the Baltimore Symphony, and I have his violin. It's, wow, And it amazing. says right inside 1776. Wow. So you know no black person could have played with the Baltimore Symphony <laughs> unless he <laughs> right, was passing right. in, during that time, you know? That is an amazing story in itself, just that. One of my great-great-aunts was hooked up with President Buchanan, the only single president, and he was passing her off as his niece because, once again, she didn't look black. Really? And so she's hosting White House dinners and stuff, and she's my great-great-aunt on my mother's mother's side. Can I ask you about, uh, real quick before we go, can I ask you about takes? How many takes would Gary usually do if he recorded something? He he seems like he would do it like in one or two takes. That's what we we had. Our production company was called One Take because (laughs) we kind of pride ourselves on doing that, getting done on the first take instead of having to overdub or, you know, you might double, but, you know, never. We just go right on through from start to finish and it's done. I could tell that. That's that live feel. How about you? How do you like to record? Do you like to just get one and done? Do you like to keep doing it over and over? Yeah, no, because like I said, I feel like if I keep doing it, I'm going to, you know, kind of lose the vibe. Yeah, I agree with that. I hate recording stuff over and over Mm -hmm. and over again. Yeah. Yeah. It is such um, an honor to speak with you, an honor to have you here. I know you had to kind of travel far, (laughs) walk about some steps and stuff to get here. And uh, it's a real honor to have you. We should take um, before you go. If you could take, we should take some picture with your comic book. Okay. And uh, we can post that too. All right. And uh, thank you so much for coming out. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed myself. It's an honor talking to you. And uh, I hope you'll come on again, and we can talk to you some more. Sure. Yeah, sure. yeah. Because we didn't get into this Stokely Carmichael stuff. I mean, oh. my life has been such a roller coaster. I've been into in and out of so actually, many different things. Actually, before we go, can I ask you about that? So you used to organize, thank you for reminding me, f- with uh, Stokely Carmichael mm-hmm. and... Uh, Eldridge and Kathleen Cleaver, Cleve Sellers. They were like the, the head of a SNCC. This, so um, was that when you were in college? Mm-hmm. So what did that entail? Like, what does that mean when you used to work, organize with them? What happened was Stokely did a, a speech at our uh, college, and he got everybody so so pumped that a girlfriend of mine and myself decided to get all the students together and pro- do a protest. So we're walking down the main street in Nashville. This I was at Tennessee State at the time. Mm-hmm. Walking down the street in Nashville and all these kids, and all of a sudden the police started shooting at us. So everybody's That's like Kent State. Uh-huh, pretty much. Nobody got killed. I don't know if they were rubber bullets because I went once again into a phone booth and ducked down and Those glasses shattering all around me. And I oh said, my oh, no, the, God. I must not have got, it must have been rubber bullets because they, I should have been dead. Oh, my God. And I came out of there. I was covered. I had cuts all over my face and stuff and blood everywhere. It was creepy. But um, oh when Stokely found out that the two of us had kind of organized it, he started talking to me about, and he'd come to D.C. and I, invite me to some of their meetings when they were talking strategy about something they were getting ready to do. 
mm-hmm. and I got really close with Cleve, and he took me to. He was teaching at Cornell. He invited me up to Cornell, taught me how to shoot a rifle. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I almost broke my shoulder because it backfired. You know, right, right. Me, you know, I was like, oh my god. <laughs> so here, here, take this. I don't think I'm. I'm not the shooter type. Okay, take it back. Yeah, we got real close. So what? Um, that's amazing. I can't believe that. Just that in itself. When you, what would you do with them, or what did you wind up doing for the organization? Well, or? I didn't stay with them long because I think this is around the time when I st- started uh, my Pan Am uh, stuff. So when uh, oh, I, that's right, and still slowly moved to Africa. That's kind uh-huh. of that's kind of thing when things were winding down. Yeah, yeah. You know, Cleveland had gotten shot at Orangeburg at the they called the Orangeburg massacre, South Carolina. Uh, Stokely was getting the FBI was all over him trying to put figure right. out a way to put him in jail when they killed Fred Hampton and everybody started getting scared, you know? Mm-hmm. Didn't feel like we could do this without losing someone special. So it kind of like, that's kind of when the thing started falling apart. And he went over to Africa, married Miriam Makiba and stayed over there. You've had so many intense experiences. Yeah. It's almost like too much for me to even listen to. Because <laughs> it, it, it's it's frightening. It's amazing. Like the, the people whose lives you've touched and and had, and touch me. Yeah, it's just like it's really incredible. Um, thank you for reminding me about that. I forgot to bring that up because mm-hmm. I, I definitely wanted to ask you about that. Um, do you want to say hello to anybody before we go? Give anybody um, a shout out? Any yes. of your people? My beautiful granddaughter London, who constantly London. keeps in touch with me. She's been texting me all morning, like, "Grandma, where are you? <laughs> You're not responding." I'm like, oh, "Well, yes, I said I'm on a plane. I can't really talk to you right now." You know, she's like, uh. "Oh, she's, oh, that's so cool." She's like seven. She so much reminds me of myself at that age. You know, How she's so? bright. She's artistic. She draws and paints. She sings, and she she could dance. She's just very. She's just very entertaining. And she just she has this wonderful spirit about her that I just love. And always got a smile on her face, always very loving. And I mean, she's just a very dear, special kid. That's fantastic. Well, shout out to London. Yeah, and my son Marshall. Hey, he's, Marshall. He's not doing too well. He's got this disease that we're trying to figure out how to save him. Okay. So that's kind of con- concerning. Well, I'm going to send him love then. Yeah, okay. and prayers. Much love Please. to Marshall. He yes, yes. It trying to keep him above ground. And there's just so much going on right now. You know, I'm thinking about maybe when Judy gets her lawsuit settled, mm-hmm. she's kind of turned me on to her attorney to make, she said, let me get mine first and I'll make sure you get hooked up as well. Because yeah. it's time. George has gotten away with this too much, too long, for years. For it's years. time and you need your monies, right? It would that's be nice right. to have my own again, you know? That's what I'm dream. my dream is, to get back on my own feet, on my own terms. If um, I hope um, if you ever need help, I, w- I would definitely love to um, lend any of my editing or ghostwriting skills for like another comic book or something. Okay. So please let us know. And then also, I know I'm going to try to go to that Funketeers Ball next year. Uh, how do you say it? Bethesda? Bethesda. 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 <laughs> I'm going to go there. Next, uh, when do you usually do it? And, uh, it's you always uh, do always it? in September. Always in September, mm-hmm. right? This year it was September 30th. I can't remember when it was last year, but it's always in September. All right. Now they're talking about doing something on New Year's Eve, the same coalition that puts that on. 
in um, Tony Cam's territory, Lynchburg, Virginia. Mm-hmm. He sent me a text a couple of days ago about it and asked me if I was interested. I said, I'm probably, I have no idea how to get to Lynchburg <laughs> from Columbus. <laughs> so I probably won't attend, but, you know, he's throwing that out there, too. They're going to try to do something else. Instead, instead of just the Funketeers Ball every year. All right. I'll, do, I'll be checking for that. More and more funk events. That's what we need. That's mm-hmm. what we need. All right. Well, I wish you well. I just thank you. you thank know, you. Safe travels back. Thank you for coming all the way to San Francisco thank to talk you. to me. It's an honor. And uh, thank you so much. May the funk be with you. And you as well. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> all right, everybody. I'll smell you later. Peace. <laughs>